You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin. Paul Haywood, the columnist and author, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. The World Cup finals in Qatar kick off in precisely 63 weeks. According to that much derided countdown clock in the England coaches' room at St George's Park, it's meant to mark England's coming of age as a world force. There's no doubt they'll qualify, irrespective of what happens in Poland on Wednesday. Gareth Southgate has called on his squad to build on the advances made in the European Championships. Italy are breaking records. Germany are getting into gear under Hansi Flick. Heaven knows what will emerge from the chaos involving Brazil and Argentina, but the South American challenge will be as viable as ever. What about England, Paul? Viable candidates as well? Oh, definitely, Mike. Semi-finals of the last World Cup, finalists at Euro 2020, a lot of talented young players who are bound to improve depth in the squad, togetherness, spirit, a manager who's really in command of his his brief. And I, I'm impressed by the way they came out of Euro 2020. They've come out undaunted, refreshed. They seem to want to get back on with the job, show how good they are. And, you know, on the form book alone, Mike, as I said, semi-finalist and finalist in consecutive tournaments, that makes them very high in the market for a Winter World Cup, which should suit English players potentially, although we don't know about the conditions in Qatar. They could be anything, frankly. But as ever, you know, you've got to guard against English insularity and acknowledge the progress made by other countries. And you've, you know, you've mentioned already Germany and Italy, and you could uh, also point to you know, countries like Spain, Denmark were going the right way. So it's not just about how good you are at World Cups, it's about the threats you face. But as things stand, England are in, in seriously good nick. Mm. We'll, we'll dwell on the wider issues you know, like, like racism a little later, Glenn, but how significant do you think was the nature of that England win in Hungary? It seemed measured and it was a quietly defiant performance. And is that a sign of increasing maturity, do you think? Yes, I think it is because, I mean, although we'll look back at that and think, oh, that was an easy win and obviously Hungary have just lost to Albania, which sort of confirms it. I mean, Hungary during the Euros at home gave France and Portugal, you know, tough games and it, away in Germany. I mean, so it did look in advance like a very daunting match. It's certainly a, a tricky match to negotiate and yet 
when you go there and you win comfortably, completely in control of the game, one of those games where the goals often come a little bit later, because that's partly because you've worn out the opposition, you've moved them around, you, know, you gradually drain them mentally and physically. So you do get, it doesn't mean, because you're playing well, quite often in those games, the goals will come at a late rush. And you've earned that over the way you played in the first 45 minutes, first hour or so. Uh, yeah, it looked, it looked very impressive, very mature, even without taking into account the other circumstances, just in terms of a pure football sense. You know, we're completely in control of the game and, and look dangerous going forwards. And you know, we we look at games against Andorra, well, well basically we, we approach them with a sign usually, don't we? The formalities of, of the World Cup qualifying programme are almost completed before they begun. You know, Wednesday's game in Poland is pretty much the only remotely testing fixture left. Paul, does this beg the question, does the World Cup qualifying system require revision, you know, probably through reduction? Probably, Mike. Every time you watch a game, an Andorra game, you wonder what the point of it is. And at the same time, you kind of rally to the, the great democracy of you know, equal opportunities. Every country should have an equal chance to go to the World Cup, no matter how small. But you do end up with these sprawling qualifying rounds, which obviously in this day and age, when everybody's scrapping for a spare minute in the calendar, start to attract attention. I tend to, I tend to want to defend international football in general against the kind of encroachments of the club game. And although these, these qualifying processes do look sprawling and unwieldy and sometimes pointless they do serve a purpose and you know for the for the good teams there is development there is progression there is a chance for players to bed themselves in ahead of tournaments so some of the benefits I think aren't obvious at the time but you do see them when the tournaments come round and England are an example of that because Gareth Southgate twice now has prepared England for tournaments extremely well. The other thing is just to come in on that I mean you could argue that UEFA one of the very few confederations where everybody's involved. I mean, CONCACAF, Asia, Africa, they all have some form of seeding. Oceania have done, haven't decided this year's format. So it wouldn't be unusual to drop a lot of teams out. But when you look, I'd only really get rid of the real minnows that have some kind of pre-qualifying, the Gibraltars, the San Marinos. If you look at the progress of Albania and Northern Ireland, Wales, North Macedonia, obviously comes against playing against better teams. And if you look at the current qualifying process, I mean, from where we're standing, it looks very straightforward. But Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, none of those are a gimmies where they're standing in the groups at the moment. Italy are breaking records, but the drawing games, they're also up against a bit with the Swiss. Only the top team get an automatic qualification. So it's by no means guaranteed that you know, it's not that easy for some of these teams. You do have to still win these games, which England are doing. Mm. What about the theory, Paul, that when you play against players of a, of a lower level, you know they're simply not good enough, they're not quick enough to actually almost secure your own safety you know a mistimed lunge you've got a player going to get injured does that sort of criticism or observation hold any weight with you well when you look at it intuitively you think oh god you know that 10 million pound england player's just been up upended by a, a guy who works in a bank and it doesn't look too clever but um <laughs> I think if you broke it down, I think there'd be very few cases of a, of a player being seriously injured by a minnow in a qualifying game. Uh, I'm struggling to think of an example of a player, you know, being put out for six months by one of those tackles. So it's potentially a problem. But in, in, in fact, I don't, I don't recall it being a particularly big issue. In the end, the, the, the star players get back up 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the worst tackles we've seen in this qualifying round was Kunde, who's like rated very, very highly. Chelsea nearly bought him on Kolasinac, yeah, and that's a top player. Yeah, yeah. And in, in terms of the players who benefited from that Andorra game, you're looking probably Glenn at, at uh, Bellingham, Jesse Lingard, perhaps, who didn't take their chance. Well, I guess it's difficult for Patrick Bamford because he didn't get a lot of service in the first half. So, I mean, you'd assume, oh, great, Andorra, home. what more can you ask for as a centre forward in your first game? But you still have to get the service. I guess you could say Southgate benefited from seeing the Trent Alexander-Arnold experiment in midfield probably didn't work. Rhys James has played a lot more there, was more successful there. I can see the temptation, if you remember, obviously, Philip Lamb became an extremely successful midfield having converted from full-back. But it's not as easy as some people might think. I mean, they've tried it in the women's game with Lucy Bronze, and it's not really worked playing her midfield. And I guess it's a different... It's suddenly you get, you get players around you rather than the game's always in front of you at full-back. And your options are slightly more diminished by the fact that you can't kick it on one side because the ball would be going off. So I guess it, what it has shown, Southgate's probably learned that that isn't a way to try and shoehorn two very good players into the team. And it won't have done Alexander-Arnold any... any drawbacks because obviously we know he's a fantastic right back but um, in terms of uh, elsewhere I mean you don't get much to do in goal in those games but it's <laughs> nice to get time on the pitch yeah so in the back four you haven't got an awful lot to do in those games mm. what about we, we can't avoid the political dimension to anything to do with the World Cup Paul FIFA are pushing really hard for a two-year cycle which is something inevitably I suppose that UEFA are opposing are we in a familiar situation here where football is once again bedeviled by political and financial self-interest? Well, it's amusing to see Arsene Wenger being at, at the forefront of a, you know, a sort of fact-finding um, mission. The great idealist, eh? The, 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 yeah, the, uh, pushing, potentially pushing for a World Cup every two years, which I've, I've never met anybody who wants to see the World Cup every two years. I mean, the Ryder Cup mainly, but not, maybe, but not the World Cup. It would create chaos. It would it would uh, fixture chaos. It would remove the, the the magic of the World Cup by turning it into a you know a, a kind of routine event, if you like. Its only purpose could be you know increase the wealth and reach of FIFA at a time when it's it's losing out pretty heavily in many ways to UEFA, the Champions League, and the club game. I can't see a single justification for it, and I'm amazed that Arsene Wenger is anywhere near it. Yeah, well, Wenger's basically talking about qualifying matches being played in blocks in October and maybe in the spring, March. Groups of four playing six games, top two going through to a summer final. But you've got, basically, that would just throw a grenade in the middle of the the domestic club calendar, wouldn't it, Glenn? Also, you end up getting more of those sort of mismatches that we saw yesterday. I mean, one of the things that... I know it's divided by some. I quite like the Nations Cup. You've got teams playing teams of their level and that's filled the gap in Europe, at least, between those qualifying periods. And it's also provided purpose. I mean, Wales are pretty much guaranteed a playoff place because of where they were in the Nations Cup. And yeah, you certainly sort of break up the whole sort of season for sort of six weeks. I mean, I suppose it gives us, in our country, for example, we give a bit of boost to you know, non-Premier League football. But it would be, I mean, I can certainly imagine if he was still manager of Arsenal. He would be going mad at this idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. You know, the, the thing about international football, it does expose, you know, pretty profound issues, doesn't it? We 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 had our own problems in in the Euros, which I think we need to acknowledge. 
and probably contextualise in a couple of minutes. But let's dwell on that racist abuse in Hungary. It was unsurprising, given that they were already under sanction. And I know this is probably a, a naive question, but, but why didn't FIFA enforce the UEFA ban? Well, it's a very good question. A ban for a country in international football surely should apply across all jurisdictions and all competitions. I mean, closing their ground for a UEFA competition but leaving it open for a FIFA one is completely nonsensical. Either you've committed the offence or you haven't. So, so to punish a country in, you know, in, in, a, in the European Championship and let them carry on as normal in the World Cup makes no sense at all. And it's a, it's a classic example of those two bodies not cooperating and, and creating a problem that, they, that could have been avoided because that stadium should have been closed for the, for the England game, as it would have been had it been a UEFA game. Again, Mike, I've, you know, the context is obviously the punishment that's coming down the line for England, for some of their fans invading their own stadium, the, the booing and the various other problems, shining a, a light into the eyes of Kasper Schmeichel, the Denmark goalkeeper, the FA's already been punished for that. So England are in big trouble as well in their own way. But the, but the, the issue of, of closing grounds when offences like this have been committed is quite straightforward and it should apply across all competitions. Yeah, we've been here before, haven't we, Glenn? But why don't teams walk off in those circumstances or why don't referees stop the game? You know, I think Southgate has been typically fair-minded in pointing out the problems that we face in England, you know, as, as manifested during the Euros. But this subject just recurs and it will keep recurring until people like FIFA fulfil promises of what they call adequate action. We know it's not going to be adequate, don't we? I think in the context of the, the Hungary game, uh, the players, when they were interviewed immediately afterwards, uh, the ones I saw on the TV, didn't appear to have heard it. So because they're focusing on the game. You don't always necessarily hear all the outside stuff. I mean, the people who had heard it were, were reporters and, and people around behind the goal, like, like Gabriel Clark, who, who obviously are more attuned to it and aren't playing in the game. So I think in that case, you can understand, you know, they didn't hear it, so they're not going to walk off. I mean, I guess... And I could also see the temptation in a game like that is of the other responses, so, well, we're really going to sort of humiliate your team. And England clearly wanted to score as many goals as possible, where sometimes you ease up in those games. But England clearly were intent of, uh, yeah. Not, not because they... It's just because the general atmosphere around them and the stuff being thrown at them rather than sort of hearing chants and stuff. Longer term, I think we are looking at a situation where teams have to walk off. But it's, it's not that easy. There is this conflict. I mean, when you're winning 3-0 away from home, you're inclined to want to stay on the pitch and finish the job. It's a bit easier to walk off if you're 2-0 down off the game's in the balance. Yeah, As serious as it is, you can see why players are wanting to sort of do the, do the make their statement on the pitch because that's what they are. They're players. So it's almost degrees, I suppose, how obvious it is, how much you're hearing it if you're on the pitch. It's extremely difficult for us, having not been in that position, to sort of put, try and put yourself in that position. So I guess you have to trust the, the players' own judgments in the circumstances. Mm. But but whatever decision they make, they should be backed up. I'm confident that Southgate in particular and the FA in general would, would back up the England team if they did walk off. Because mm. it's interesting, that's an extension of his of his sort of broader ethos, I suppose, Paul, the collective personality of the squad that he's created does reflect his management, doesn't it? Inevitably, you know, he, he made a point of of praising them as an incredibly mature, self-supporting group. 
we have talked about this in the past, but this is a different type of group, isn't it? It's much more natural in in, in public. It's not doesn't have that sort of you know, falseness of the media trained predecessors that we've we've all dealt with. How important do you think is the sort of philosophical base of this England team? Well, on that point about them being themselves, I mean, for years people said that if players are encouraged to find their voice and not be afraid of the outside world, not be besieged, if you like, as international footballers, then then it would make them better players. And finally, that point has been proved beyond dispute because all these England players are, are sort of confident in their own skin. Then they're, they're not afraid to take a position. They're not afraid to tackle difficult subjects. And and I think that has increased their their self esteem, their effectiveness. The, the classic example is is Raheem Sterling, who has said. A couple of times now that uh, when he took a stand at, at Stamford Bridge after he was racially abused, playing for Manchester City against Chelsea, that improved him as a player because it, it enabled him to feel more powerful, more confident about himself, like he had a voice. And that translated into his game, particularly his, his international game with, with England. So there is nothing to be gained by suppressing uh, the personalities of footballers. And at the same time, obviously, we live in an age where there are these huge undercurrents, these huge issues, you know, flowing around politically. And the England team and Gareth Southgate have, have taken on those issues where, where they're relevant or where it's necessary, you know, and shown themselves to be really modern, intelligent, progressive, kind of grounded people. And this is, this is a very rare thing, not just in England, but I think in any country. And... Most of us appreciate this change and we appreciate being able to watch an England team that people can identify with and feel proud of. Yeah, I thought it was very marked, the, the warmth towards Bakaya Saka, who's, who's scored England's fourth goal on his, on his 20th birthday. The nature of that squad, Glenn, Paul mentioned uh, Raheem Sterling. Can you just concentrate, please, on two other members? Declan Rice, does he look like captaincy material to you and someone like Calvin Phillips there's another relatable player making the most of his chance isn't it yeah absolutely there's a nice little video that the FA put out last week didn't they of um, Rice presenting the England Player of the Year award to Phillips which showed them how natural they were I do get the feeling within that squad it's, it's a very, a squad that's very, very supportive of each other, but not in the old siege mentality way that used to be the case in squads that were supporting each other. It's not us against the world, it's us bringing the world with us. We think how well they played in the summer. You know, two players who haven't played in the Champions League, which is seen you know, rightly as the judge of the landmark or the benchmark of where you are as a footballer now, and dovetailed expertly together. They will have competition in there for places from Bellingham and Henderson and others, but they do look... Show, they show great maturity. Say Phillips come from a difficult background. He's emerged very quickly at Leeds. Still seems very grounded. Rice again. I mean, I know there's talk about there's lots of talk swirling around him. Has been for a couple of years now about moving, but it doesn't seem to affect his game at all. And he, you know, the way he's been playing, you know, the start of the season for West Ham this year again has been terrific. Showing a bit more of himself in the game, the forward aspects of it, um, and you know, there's plenty more to come from those two. Yeah, what about another sign of, of development, if you like, Paul, is I think England and specifically Southgate are getting better at this whole idea of club v country diplomacy. It was it was notable that uh, Jaden Sancho was released back to United 
due to what was described as a slight knock, just to ensure his availability for, for next weekend. And also, you've got players playing the system now, haven't you? Lukaku got a convenient yellow. Ronaldo did the same. Are we are we getting to the stage of almost like real politic taking over in this you know eternal clash between a club and a country? Well, Gareth Southgate's got so many good young attacking players, he's probably relieved to send a couple of them home every now and again because uh, <laughs> it, it gives him less to think about when he's picking his team. But yes, it's definitely becoming more nuanced, that's for sure. I mean, the, the research I'm be, I've been doing for my England book shows this to be an issue that goes back, I mean, 100 years. You know, it's, it's just been this fascinating kind of scorpion dance between club and country all the way through England's history. It's changed in complexion, obviously, over the years, but it's, it's essentially the same conundrum. It's a, it's a, it's a fight for the, for the players and, and, a, and a fight for power. And, uh, yeah, Gareth Southgate has, um, is, is pretty much on top of that. When you think back to how Sven-Joran Eriksson, for example, was pushed around and allowed himself to be pushed around by um, Premier League managers, uh, there's no comparison Southgate's a, 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 you know, he's a tough character underneath that very genial exterior and he's not afraid to take a position. But at the same time, he, he's clever. He, he knows that um, he has to, has to give and take. And Sancho going back to Manchester United looks like, uh, you know, a small example of give and take. The other thing about it is the players want to play, they want to join up. That's a big so difference. it makes it much harder for club managers to say, oh, don't go, you've got a bit of a knock. You know, they're going to gaffer, I want to play, I want to go. I, I could lose my place in this team. Yeah, well, I suppose on, on that theme, Glenn, you've got Gareth Bale, uh, who were without 13 players when they played against Belarus on Sunday for some bizarre reason in Kazan. You know, Gareth Bale is happy now at Real Madrid, he says. Scored his first, or well, scored a hat-trick for them at the weekend. And he's basically saying, I want to get this team, my country, to a World Cup final. That's just a basic motivation, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, as it happens, the way things have worked out, as I mentioned earlier, they're pretty much guaranteed a playoff place and they're unlikely to catch, you know, get, get top spot. So in a way, these games are... Yeah, not quite going for the motions, but they're not that. They just need to stay in the top three, really, as far as I understand it. But I mean, Bao, he's been fantastic for Wales for a long time. It's good to see him back playing some club football. Yeah, around Madrid. I mean, um, fans are pretty forgiving. Someone starts playing well for you. Yeah, you may have been some problems in the past. If Bao starts playing really well for Real Madrid and start looking like he's making a bit of an effort out there and scoring some goals, suddenly you become quite popular again. Yeah, talking about being popular, a certain Mr. Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo is uh, going to be a name on most people's lips this week. As I said, he's basically swung the lead, got himself a nice little yellow card by taking his shirt off, so it gives him a week to prepare for the Newcastle game. Paul, you know, well, all of us, we've been around the block long enough to know that the hype's going to be absolutely off the charts. Is it realistic to expect him to make an immediate impact at Man United? It is, and I, if he did get that yellow card so that he could prepare for a week, he's obviously assuming already he's going to play a major part in the game. I mean, I'm, you know, is Oli Gonesalskiar going to stick, stick him straight in? I suppose he will, but it's an interesting dynamic because I kind of feel I know what I'm going to see from him. You're going to see less mobility, fewer of those 50-yard sprints on counter-attacks that we remember him for in his first incarnation at Man United. It, it's not the same Ronaldo this time round. But we know we'll see a deadly finisher, we'll see a clever player, cunning player, player of kind of huge, you know, authority and mystique and, and he'll do all sorts of good things for Manchester United. But I'm more interested 
to see what it does to Man United rather than what it does to him, because there are so many questions around that. I mean, will any of Solskjaer's authority be, be weakened? Will the young players miss out? You know, will the team start revolving around him? Will will the whole point of the pattern of play be to get the ball to him? The, you know, these are... You would hope not. You would hope that Solskjaer will be as strong with Ronaldo in the team as he was before he arrived, because Manchester United are going places a bit jerkily at times, but they are progressing. And I'd like to think that Ronaldo will complement that rather than just kind of turn it into the Cristiano Ronaldo show. Yeah. Glenn, obviously, you know, you do a lot of work within the women's game. I mean, one of the things about the international break is it, it has concentrated attention on the start of the WSL season. To a degree, it, it filled the club void. There were eight or 9,000 at, at, at the Emirates yesterday to see Arsenal beat Chelsea. When, we go, when we're going into this new season, do you think the women's game is in danger of, of almost like recreating some of the elitism of the men's game? We saw... Manchester City win 4-0 at Everton, who were touted as the best of the rest. What do you feel about the way that the women's game is developing? I think there's obviously a risk. Yeah, Everton were felt contenders. Suddenly they get beaten 4-0 at home against a City team where got a lot of injuries. So difficult for them. Uh, though they did only have three new signings. Everton had played more new signings. And yeah, the back four had been together. I know they didn't have Lucy Bronze playing. So it wasn't quite as... Yeah, surprises might seem but it is it comes down to the same old thing money you know those three clubs have put a lot of money into their teams and they've been rewarded with uh, good strong size with good depth and it's paying off but the amount of money we talk about in the women's game isn't massive I mean we're now into millions but we're not into we're not talking about millions of millions any team in the Premier League were they prepared to could actually invest significantly enough to close that gap quite quickly and it's interesting one or two you know begin I mean Leicester have only just come up they look quite ambitious, you know. Say so Everton have made quite a few good new signings, so it's at the moment within the reach of other clubs to challenge what we would be regarded as the big clubs in the men's Premier League to match them in the women's game. I suspect as the sport goes on, that may not necessarily be the case because you obviously money talks. Yeah, and it tends to talk fairly loud at Manchester United. You 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 watch them kick off the season, Glenn. Do you feel that they've got a chance of, of really establishing themselves and almost justifying the, I suppose, strategic support of the women's game within that club, a very belated support? It's quite hard at the moment to see them break into those that top three. I mean, they look a weaker team than last year when they had Heath and Press and Lauren James, all of whom have left. The, the, the players coming in, I mean, they've got a new manager in as well. I mean, Casey Stoney was an excellent manager. Mark Skinner's got good experience, but obviously it's a new job for him. So I, f I think having fallen away last year and just missed out on third place, the, the weakest team last year, Arsenal, have strengthened quite quite significantly. It's going to be quite hard for them to bridge that gap because certain teams can themselves consolidate themselves in fourth, but there are only three European places in the women's game. And bridging that gap is going to be quite tricky. They need to rely on the top three taking lots of points out of it, off each other and not dropping points like they did last year against teams like Reading, who they lost at home to last year. Obviously, this time they beat them. Yeah, it was interesting, Paul, to to listen to Emma Hayes, who I think is a really intriguing, you know, very accomplished coach, talk about the need for the women's game to have parity in almost technological terms, i.e. goal line technology. I thought she should have been a bit more careful about what she wished for when she was going for, say, we need VAR as well. What's your take on all that? I suppose uh, if you're a leader in women's football, as, as 
she is. It, it's it, you know, it's natural to want kind of equality in all areas, and and technology is one of those kind of almost symbols of of you know progress and development. So I can see why she would want it. She'd also she's also seen it work very well, of course, uh, as well as very badly. And so, you know, VAR's kind of public image has improved a little bit, I think, over the summer. But obviously in the English game, we're still capable of making a mess of it. Um, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't blame her for wanting something in the women's game that is obviously now a, a, a very big factor in the men's game, even though it's a factor that a lot of us quite a lot of the time regret. I suppose one of the significant things, Paul, about Emma Hayes and her status at Chelsea is that she is a central member of the senior management team at the club and with all the implicit support and actual practical support that means coming from the owner how important is it that people of you know within her orbit at other clubs get the same sort of respect and influence so that will enable the women's game to almost grow from within that's it, exactly, Mike. I mean, it's the progression that women's football has to go on from being kind of, you know, the recipients of, of you know, male acceptance. So they come into the game and, and, and yeah, OK, we'll, we'll create a team and we'll let you play on our second pitch, you know, and we'll, we'll put a bit of money in, but not too much. You know, from that, those very early days, if you, if, you, if you wrote a kind of a line of progression from there to where women's football would need to be, I, uh, ideally you'd have women in positions of power influencing club politics and club decisions, club policy. And as you said, that's where Emma Hayes is now. And and the more women, representatives of women football that are involved at the very top of these clubs, the more women's football is just going to become equal and normalised to the point where it's it's there's almost no distinction between men and women's football, you know. And, and uh, uh, you're, you're quite right, power and influence and positions of authority are vital to that. Yeah. And in a... Another sense, you know, you had Arsenal, as I said, playing at the Emirates, Glenn. That was a statement win over Chelsea, wasn't it? It was. Just another point, I mean, Mark Skinner at Manchester United said how welcoming Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had been to him coming in. I think there's, there's quite a lot. I mean, that, uh, managers recognise fellow professionals, you know, at, in, in, within the, those clubs. The battery is often upstairs rather than across the two the sides. But yeah, very impressive win for Arsenal. Again, new manager, helped by the fact they've had some... Testing, but not too demanding European qualifiers to play, whereas Chelsea have started from scratch. And also helped by the fact that they play more of their big Olympic players from the start, whereas Chelsea are looking to sort of bend them in a bit more slowly. So they had some you know, top players, Kerr, Kirby on the bench, whereas Little Miedema started for Arsenal. I mean, Emma made the point afterwards, rather pointedly, that she's looking to get her players through the whole season and Arsenal's hadn't had a rest. Well, because if Arsenal in the Champions League qualifiers, they didn't have that as much choice and they'd probably try and rest them during the season. Yeah. Let's look at uh, the rest of the international break, if we could, Paul. It's comedic almost, isn't it? It's so surreal, some of the things that have gone on this weekend. When you've got Naby Keita being caught up in a coup attempt in Guinea, and that was just you know, a subhead to what actually went on in, in Brazil, where you have health officials invading the pitch to try and deport for... English-based Argentine players. What future does international football have given those sort of problems? Yeah, it's incredible that that issue managed to get that far to the point of sort of officials invading the pitch. It looked, 
It looked highly political, didn't it? They could have stopped that problem way down the line. They didn't have to let it get to the point where the game kicks off and, and there's mayhem in the stadium. It, 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 it was just sort of it was political theatre, wasn't it? But at the root of it, there is this problem of players from Europe particularly being sent to or going to red-list countries to play international football. And that is clearly problematic and it's going to remain so for, well, God, I wish I knew how long, but say for argument another year, uh, international football is going to have to find a way around this because this current system clearly isn't working. And it's not fair to the players either. Those, those players who travelled uh, would have faced a, presumably a, a serious quarantine when they got back. I can't remember whether they've waived the, the rules on that for international footballers playing abroad. But, you know, whatever, whatever, it's, 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 it's not good for the players. They shouldn't have to be in that position. It's onerous for them. In the short term... South American countries may just have to call fewer players from Europe. I know they won't like that, and it, and it, it 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 seems unjust. But if if the medical constraints on on players travelling to red list countries are that serious, where to the point where a Brazil and Argentina game gets called off, you know, <laughs> a minute into the game, then it, they they can't carry on like this, can they? Well, it's telling, of course, that the Brazilian players didn't travel, which may be another aspect. Well, to the political theatre we saw the other day. I think the Argentine guys were, the plan was they were quarantined in Croatia on the way back, which means they can sort of you know, still get exercise and so on. But it's not just football, you know, uh, the problems that rugby's had in the Southern Hemisphere, the, uh, the ashes is in doubt because of the situation with COVID in Australia. But international sport is political by definition. I mean, people say keep politics out of sport, but I mean, they play the national anthem before events. It is political. Mm. But you put yourself in the, in the club's position. Let's say, okay, Aston Villa and Spurs did go against the grain in many ways and, and they did release key players. And I think they will miss matches because of this. That is unsustainable because the clubs have the power, don't they? Yeah, and the clubs pay the wages. If you're Dean Smith, you're tearing your hair out. I mean, Martinez had a tremendous impact at Villa. Yeah, and now he's going to be robbed of him for you know, a couple of weeks. And Buendina is one of his you know, star signings this summer. So it is. this is going to be quite complicated and it's tough on the players because they're caught in the middle of this. Yeah, and it's not, Paul, as if people weren't warned. You had the Premier League, La Liga, Ligue 1 in France, Serie A, the European Club Association, who have got another meeting this week about it. They're all saying, just resist this. But FIFA are demanding that players go. I suppose the question is, is FIFA the problem? Well, yes, if, it, if, it's, if it's telling players to go to red-list countries, which then exposes them in their own countries, their own bubbles, and football has created quite a few successful bubbles, let's face it. If it's sending players out of those bubbles and exposing them to the, the, you know, the, the restrictions that apply to all of us, when we're travelling to red list countries, well, that's that that's just not okay, and it's it is politicking. It's 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 a it's a it's a political gesture to say you will not stop our players playing in FIFA competitions, and there is no regard there, no concern for the players themselves, or indeed the clubs who are within their rights to say, well, we've got a bubble that works, but if you're asking us to send players to red list countries, that's going to create. A level of mayhem that's just not acceptable. But I think your point, Mike, that, that there is a lack of kind of foresight and cooperation here is is is, is the real point, isn't it? It's a power battle everywhere. Comrade Bowl were told by some to you know, use the summer to catch up with the matches that they lost because they've had quite a lot of matches postponed through COVID already. 
but they decided they wanted to stage a Copa America instead. And again, it comes down to money, it comes down to power in the federations. Yeah, but it also comes down to players, Glenn. Mm. Basically, you're going to have a burnout problem here, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, the players can't play so many matches. Look at Pedri. He you know, basically played all year last year, 18, and thrown straight into a game at the start of the season. Yeah. I suppose we can wind all this up, really, by looking at almost closer to home and another example of what I suppose I can be charitable and say the clumsiness of the disciplinary system. Paul, what's your thought, uh, or both of you, please, uh, the FA are bringing themselves into disrepute here, aren't they, by charging Middlesbrough's Mark Bowler for a tweet he made when he was a 14-year-old schoolboy. Surely we need a bit of common sense here, don't we? Well, I think the, the first principle that needs to apply is that, to be applied is that there needs to be a cut, an age cut-off. So you can't treat a 14-year-old the way you would treat a 21-year-old. And that there needs to be a, an age limit, whether it's 16 or 18 or whatever it is, below which you don't go with the full disciplinary force. What you would do with a 14-year-old is it, it, if you spotted it, if it was drawn to your attention, you might make a note of it and perhaps have a word with him privately to say, look, you know, we're aware of this tweet that you thing you said when you were 14. You, let's, let's just go through the educational process, but not unleash the full kind of disciplinary tanks on him because he's 40, he was 14 years old and that's just not fair to hold somebody account so to account for that now when you you can you can argue about the nuances of what what you should do and how many tweets or social media posts you should go back to but that the first issue is to create a, a time an age limit a cut-off point before and after which you treat players in a very different or people in a very different way yeah, it's about context, isn't it, Glenn? And I suppose this also, it does carry the danger that it could undermine the campaign against online hate, which I think we all support and we've all spoken about. They just have to be sensible, don't they? Yes. I, I think I agree with Paul. There should be an age amnesty, uh, probably 18. There should probably be a time amnesty as well, you know, 10 years, because the world was in a different place, for, for better or worse, 10 years ago. There is a slight aspect in that if a 14-year-old, 15-year-old was abusing one of our, one of the players who missed the penalties against Italy during the summer, we will be calling for some kind of penalty to be taken. And that in that respect, they would have been under 18. Under 18 shouldn't be exempt in those circumstances. So you have to be aware of a sort of a double standard in that respect. But I mean, to pull a player up on something that happened nine years ago when he was 14. And a lot of these things are being picked up when... Um, yeah, I mean, in this case, Bowler scored against an opposition team and suddenly this was sent to the FA. So people, and this has happened in newspapers as well, have been trawling through old social media tweets that people tweeted years ago and forgotten completely about and being pulled up. And often, I mean, in this case, the FA will send it privately, but in other cases, it's gone, it's gone caught to public notice, at which point the FA had to do something, even just to say there is an amnesty, you know, which would get them out of jail in that respect. So it's slightly complicated. Uh, A 17-year-old abuses Saka in the summer. Do we say that's fine, he's under 18? We we don't, obviously. So you can't necessarily say that all under 18-year-olds have an amnesty. But obviously the time aspects to it, and it's complicated, and it does... I mean, I teach teach young students, and I say, yeah, be very careful what you put on social media. 
you know, because this stuff is always out there. And, you know, we're a generation that are growing up, you put all their thoughts on social media, as someone might have said in the playground or in the pub to somebody, anyone would have forgotten about a few days later. So it's a case of education, you know, young players. But certainly something nine years ago for Suns 14, I think that's very much excessive. Yeah, and it's interesting, but, well, significant, I would have thought, that those charged for social media abuse of England players during the Euros, they range from 18 to 63. So it's not a generational problem. It's a problem stretched across the generations, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's the, 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 the latent bigotry of... of some people from the older generations that, that that we mixed with at England games, you know, the the element, the the the, the obnoxious kind of element at English game, England games, and the new, younger kind of social media empowered group who who feel that they can say whatever they like. They that 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 social media gives them a kind of human right to be abusive about other people. So you so in that age range from eighteen to sixty three, you've got you've got all those elements, haven't you? add it all together and you've got a, a societal problem that just changes but doesn't really go away but the, the good news is that um, you know we've got a we've, we've got a, we've got a, a counter reaction among the among people among England fans and we've got an England team and an England manager who've looked it straight in the face and not flinched at all and that is a very when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply very powerful thing mm. I suppose as a final point Glenn does football need to do more to help itself it's very very marked that the Premier League the FA the EFL have all said we don't need an independent regulator for obvious reasons again we're down to power and money again we do need an independent regulator don't we absolutely I've been calling this for 20 years absolutely I am mildly optimistic that the review that's taken place under Tracy Crouch, who have got a lot of time for, might produce some change. It rather depends on the political will above her, which I'm less confident about. Certainly there is a move for change with organisations like Fair Game, uh, some clubs and fans getting involved. But we absolutely need an independent regulator. I mean, um, it's been obvious for many, many years. Yeah, well, you do get the impression that the powers that be in the Premier League are delighted that the FA has got responsibility for disciplinary issues. Now, let's face it, no one warms to a traffic warden, do they? As we've said, context is everything. But we've got to ask, where are we heading with this if this bowler case continues? The FA, what are we going to have next? They sanction a player for a smutty joke he told in the playground or behind a bike shed when he was six or a primary school? This case is ludicrous and it should be quietly dropped. It's detracting attention from genuine abuse and real victims. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Paul and Glenn for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>